welcome to Disputes and Perspective. I'm Doug Cherry, a partner in the Disputes team at Reed Smith. This podcast series will discuss disputes-related trends, hot topics and developments occurring in the global legal landscape, and hopefully provide you with some helpful insights and practical tips. If you have any questions about any of the episodes, please feel free to contact our speakers. Hi, and welcome to this latest podcast in our Disputes and Perspective series. My name is Oliver Rawkins, and I'm a counsel in the Global Commercial Disputes team at Reed Smith, based in our London office. In this episode, we're going to take a look at the current state of play with class actions in England, following on from the recent Supreme Court decision in Lloyd and Google. I'm joined by my colleague, Daniel Newbound, a knowledge management lawyer for our GCD team. Hi, Dan. Hi, Ollie. Delighted to be with you today. So Lloyd and Google was plainly a very significant decision in English law for class actions. If Mr Lloyd had succeeded with his claim, it may well have opened up the floodgates for huge class actions under English law for data breaches against multinational companies processing vast amounts of personal data. Not only that, in theory, it might also have established a new and easier route for bringing class actions under English law more generally. So suffice to say, there was a lot riding on the decision of the Supreme Court. So to understand the context um, for that decision a bit further, Dan, can you talk us through how class actions work at present in the English system? Thanks, Ollie. Yeah, well, I think to answer that, I think you've actually got to start with the US system. So in the the classic US system model, let's say you've got a a class of consumers who've been affected by something. A, A single plaintiff, assuming that they meet certification requirements, can bring a claim on behalf of the entire class. So everybody falling within the class definition is regarded as part of the class unless they've opted out. What that means, this is called opt out, an opt-out system, and what it means is you can combine lots of small claims and have a single litigant bringing a claim for a very, very big damages number. So it creates critical maths, a huge claim which is worth solicitors and claimant solicitors and litigation funders investing the time in bringing for the courts, whereas it might not be worth a their time if it was just a single consumer bringing a very small claim. Now, in England, we actually do have an opt-out system in relation to competition law breaches. Um, And there are several cases proceeding at the moment as collective actions in the Competition and Appeals Tribunal, uh, notably a case called Merrick's MasterCard. But for everything else, England adopts an an opt-in approach. So each person within the class wanting to participate in the litigation has to actively step over the line and choose to participate. So they actually have to issue a claim at court. And the usual mechanism for bringing a class action uh, on this in this opt-in system is, a, is what's called a group litigation order. And the way this works is that all these claims that have been issued by these, these mass claimants are, are, are bundled together and managed by a single lead solicitor, but who maintains a register of everyone who's participating. And then one of the claims is selected as a test case. So you can think about a, a massive Excel file with you know, literally hundreds or thousands of rows of claimants, but, but, but that creates problems. Um, the first one is that you've, you've got to take you know, some quite expensive and time-consuming administrative steps to get each individual claimant to sign up. And then you've got to you know, spend the, the, the time maintaining them as a, as a participant in the litigation. And that, that costs money. The other problem is that um, you actually have to get people to opt in and to participate. And that's more difficult than you'd expect. There's, there's a natural tendency amongst people to do nothing when faced with a choice. 
Uh, and in a recent data claim involving Morrison's, you know, where the fact that people had been affected was reasonably obvious, they could only um, attract 10,000 out of 100,000 employees to join the action. And the final problem is, is the compensatory principle. This is king under English law. And um, it means it's, it's, it's not as easy for the English courts to award damages uh, as a class. So where you have consumers who, who can't fund the litigation themselves and the, very, uh, and the claims are very small, you need someone to fund them for them, some fund it for them, typically a claimant, law firm and, and litigation funders. But these problems with the opt-in litigation make it very difficult to attract litigation funding for class actions. At the end of the day, funders want to return and it's difficult to generate the critical mass for damages to make it worthwhile. So, so that's the context. Enter Mr. Lloyd with a cunning plan. Ollie, you're going to talk us through what that was. Yes, absolutely. But before we get to Mr. Lloyd's cunning plan, I just wanted to quickly recap on both the key facts involved in, in, in the case itself. So the background to Mr. Lloyd's claim against Google was uh, at the centre of it was this allegation that between August 2011 and February 2012, Google placed double-click advertising tracking cookies on iPhones via the Apple Safari internet browser without the consent of the iPhone user. It was further alleged that those cookies were able to collect and aggregate considerable information about the affected individuals for the purposes of targeting advertisements. And this allegation has been the subject of other separate litigation, which is in its own right high profile. The legal claim at the centre of Mr. Lloyd's claim against Google was that this activity amounted to um, unlawful processing in breach of the 1998 Data Protection Act, giving rise to a right for affected consumers to seek compensation under Section 13 of the 1998 Act. Now, the class of affected consumers was potentially, and unsurprisingly, huge. This is millions of iPhone users with claims for data misuse. If you like, this is the kind of classic territory for a US-style opt-out class action. However, if you attempted to bring this sort of claim using the English group litigation order mechanism, I think you run into some of the issues, Dan, you were describing earlier. In particular, um, the high administrative costs for a class of consumers who probably, on an individual basis, have only very low-value claims. Now, Mr. Lloyd is a consumer activist and he's backed by a litigation funder and a particular claimant law firm in terms of the funding costs of his action. Now, to get around the usual problem associated with the group litigation order mechanism, he made the ingenious attempt to use a little known representative action procedure under CPR 19 to bring what amounted to an opt out class action. Now, under this representative action procedure, a party can be appointed the representative of a class of litigants on the condition that they share the same community of interest. It's not used very widely because you often hit the same fundamental problem, that as damages are compensatory in nature, it makes it very difficult to establish that all litigants have exactly the same interest in the proceedings, so that one one can represent all. Now, to give you an illustration um, of this, there's been a recent Court of Appeal decision in a case called Jala and Shell, where the Court of Appeal refused to allow a representative action on behalf of just under 27, uh, sorry, 28,000 individuals and 457 communities in Nigeria affected by an oil spill because there were fundamental variations in the causes of action being advanced in the causation arguments 
being advanced as well, and in the issues related to damages. So to deal with these problems associated with the community of interest um, condition, Mr Lloyd has framed um, the claim for damages using a top-down approach, characterising damages as calculated on a uniform basis for loss of control of the data. The lowest common denominator applied, so each member of the class was alleged to have a fixed value claim of £750, which doesn't sound a great deal. But of course, if you extrapolate that over millions of customers, then you have a very significant damages claim indeed, which I'm, I'm sure you can see would be very well worth a litigation funder and a claimant law firm investing in and taking the risk. So on that basis, Mr Lloyd said he could act as representative for the entire class of iPhone users and could collect uniform damages on behalf of all of them, which he would then need to distribute if successful. So if Mr Lloyd had succeeded with his um, permission for service out of the jurisdiction, and convinced the English court as uh, to there being a serious issue to be tried, it would have in principle opened up the potential for a whole cottage industry of damages claims framed in a similar way. So Dan, what did the uh, Supreme Court make of all this? Yeah, thanks, Ollie. And as, as you say, in order to um, proceed with his uh, cunning plan, <laughs> Mr. Lloyd needed to get over a threshold point, which was to get permission to serve on Google out of the jurisdiction. And as part of that, he needed to show that his action had a real prospect uh, of success, and it was also suitable to bring as a representative action. Now, actually, the High Court found against him on that point. That was overturned by the Court of Appeals, so perhaps slightly unusually for a case at this such an early stage. The point went to the um, Supreme Court, although no doubt it was a very important one. And the Supreme Court, led by uh, the Supreme Court, um, Lord Leggett, giving the majority judgment, found against Lloyd. And I think the key points from the judgment are as follows. So as I alluded to earlier, the, the compensatory principle is king under English law for compensating in damages for civil wrong. And it, it requires that the individual be put in the same position if the wrong had not occurred. And what that means is that the court really needs to assess damages on an individual basis. And what the Supreme Court says is, well, if we've got to assess damages on an individual basis, this isn't going to be suitable for a representative action because basically, at the point Ollie was making earlier, not everyone in the class will have the same interest. There is going to that you can't meet the community of interest requirement. The Supreme Court also found that on the specific wording of the DPA 1998, was the legislation this um, action was brought under, it, it distinguishes between a contravention of the data protection legislation and the damage. So it's not just enough that you can show that a data controller has, has, has breached the data protection legislation, it also, you also need to show on an individual basis that the consumer has suffered material loss or damage. So again, that requires an individual assessment of damage. Now, Lloyd had framed his claim on the basis of user damages to try and get around this point, but the Supreme Court found, well, as the data protection legislation requires individual loss and damage, you can't bring a user claim damage, claim for user damages under that piece of data protection legislation. And even if you could, on the authority of a case called Morris Garner, user damages would still need to be compensatory, and then you still get back to the same point that the court would need to assess the value of the loss of use to the to the to the individual consumer on a specific and individual basis. So it's essentially simply not possible to bring a damages claim uh, on a uniform basis as required under a representative action because the interests of each person might vary. And to sort of give you an example of that, you know, you've got the the differing impact, the differing val- loss of value between a very heavy user of the iPhone uh, and someone who, who who hardly uses it at all. 
So stripped to stripped to the basics, Lloyd was um, trying to claim damages based on violation of privacy without showing that there'd actually been a violation of privacy in, in each individual case. So framed as it was, the Supreme Court said um, the claim had no prospects of success uh, and couldn't proceed on a representative action basis. So that, that presumably brings an end to it because Lloyd could proceed as an individual, but it's not really potentially going to be worth it. And it certainly can't proceed in the kind of on a much larger class action basis in the form that Lloyd was trying to proceed with. So, so Ollie, what do we think are the implications for class actions more generally from the decision? Yeah, thanks, Dan. I, I think there's probably more, more than one way to look at this. I think on a sort of a narrow basis, what's plain is that the Supreme Court has determined that a right to damages is not automatic under Section 13 of the 1998 Data Protection Act. And further, that, that it, it's explained that such a claim would require proof of individual damage. I think by implication, that shuts down a potential route by which funders and claimant lawyers could, um, could launch mass data claim class actions under this specific legislation. I think at a broader level, the fact that a representative action um, should not be allowed to proceed in any event is in line or broadly consistent with the trend in England that opt-out representative actions are not commonplace. It, it shows that no floodgates have been opened for claimants to make claims on behalf of large groups of individuals without those individuals first being identified and particularising their claim. So the Supreme Court went so far as to say in, in the terms of Leggett's judgment that it did not want to express a view on whether class actions should be expanded in this area because it felt there simply wasn't a viable claim. But but in a sense, the Supreme Court, by reaching the decision it did, has expressed some form of view, certainly by contrast to the more pragmatic approach that the lower court, the Court of Appeal, had taken in allowing the claim to proceed and granting Mr Lloyd permission. The Supreme Court seems to be giving a pretty strong indication that it doesn't think a representative action it's certainly along the lines that Mr Lloyd had proposed um, should be the basis on which the law in this area should develop. All that said, I think there are some chinks of light in the Supreme Court decision for mass claims um, using representative actions. Leggett himself says that representative actions should not be restricted and the courts should be prepared to show flexibility in how to develop the rule. He also talks about a purposive approach and there being no reason why a representative couldn't represent a class of litigants as long as no conflict of interest exists between them. Then he says that if the same interest requirement is satisfied, then at a practical level, you know, the resource management, uh, certainly as far as it um, relates to the courts themselves, lends towards allowing a representative claim. And I suppose that from the court's perspective, it's better to have an individual test case go on to determine whether a uh, multiple individual claims that might follow should proceed rather than all those multiple claims happening at the same time clogging up the court system. Leggett, you know, is even more helpful in, his, uh, in, the, in the judgment, by, and he talks about a possible bifurcated process that Mr Lloyd could have followed or could have um, outlined in his application permission so that a, uh, a representative runs a test case to a, obtain a declaration of a finding on liability which, if successful, means that individual claims can then proceed. And Leggett suggests that in, in those kind of circumstances, limitation for the individual claims could be suspended while the test case is resolved. And there could still be a mass damages claim if there is a common interest in damages. For example, if the same defect in the consumer product reducing its value by exactly the same amount 
um, was the sort of common denominator between these claims. I think the problem is, and Leggett himself acknowledges this in his um, when he talks about his bifurcated process, is that the process itself doesn't, at least on the face of it, seem, you know, from an economic perspective, at all attractive for a litigation funder. And it, it seems to me that for it to be attractive, there would have to clearly be two criteria in that, as far as the litigation funder was concerned, that there was sufficient connection between all these individual cases to make it economic to then fund them. And that, you know, at a commercial level, presumably the funder had some form of certainty, maybe in the form of an exclusivity agreement with the individuals who would run um, the claims following a successful test case to make it worthwhile for the funder to, to fund the original test. Interestingly, just as a, just as a final point about Leggett's, what, what Leggett outlines and, and proposes and, com- and his commentary on Lloyd's proposed process he in fact says that, and this is the word he Leggett himself uses, that the law should not be prissy about assigning a commercial value to user damages in appropriate cases. So, you know, I don't think that, you know, on, on reading Lloyd and Google, it's necessarily the case that one is left thinking that the Supreme Court is, you know, conceptually, uh, fundamentally um, anti-class action. I think we've seen in the Merits and MasterCard decision earlier in the year that where the Supreme Court was instrumental in, uh, albeit in the context of um, competition uh, matter, an opt-out, opt-out class action being green-lit, that, that that just simply isn't the case, that, that they are somehow conceptually opposed to, to, to these kind of actions. I think it just felt that in the context of the claim that was being brought forward by Mr Lloyd, um, this was a, a bridge too far and the Supreme Court clearly felt unable to endorse it and that it just wasn't suitable for the representative action mechanism. There's just one final point I wanted to mention, just about the legislation involved in this case. Uh, Lloyd and Google was brought under the Data Protection Act 1998, as we've talked about earlier. Uh, That's now, of course, been replaced by uh, GDPR and the 2018 Data Protection Act. Now, the Supreme Court specifically said it didn't consider this new legislation in the context of the Lloyd and Google case. Well, the GDPR has some quite fundamental differences to the Data Protection Act 1998. It talks about compensation being available in relation to non-material damage as well as material damage. And it also references loss of control of personal data as an example of possible damage resulting from a breach. And I suppose, and I don't think we can set, put, it, put it high at this, but it does leave open the question of whether a representative action based on this more recent legislation might in principle be possible. So with that thought brings an end to our discussion today. Thanks very much for joining this episode of Disputes in Perspective. If you do have any questions, please reach out to Dan or me. I hope you'll join us for the next episode. Thank you. Disputes in Perspective is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's litigation and dispute resolution practice, please email disputesinperspective at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, and ReadSmith.com, and our social media accounts at ReadSmithLLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.